time has come is we've got to go the extra step. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. I'll compromise. We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers. Geez, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to balance the power here. And I'm Claire Salmi. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. In today's episode of 1050 Bascom, we're very happy to talk again to Professor John Peavy House, who teaches a variety of courses in both international relations and foreign policy for both the Political Science Department and the La Follette School of Public Affairs. Professor Peavy House is the chair of the Political Science Department and is teaching Introduction to International Relations this fall. Today, we'll talk to Professor Peavy House about how intensifying global differences over Taiwan's status in the international order are fueling rising tensions between the island and China. We're also going to ask him about how Taiwan has the potential to be a flashpoint in U.S.-China relations, with some analysts suggesting it could potentially lead to war. Thank you so much for joining us again here today. It's great to have you back. Awesome. We're going to jump right in now to talking about Taiwan and China. First question for you. There's escalating tensions between Taiwan and China, mm-hmm. and it's been in the news daily these days. Yep. President Biden's off-the-cuff remark in May that committed the United States to Taiwan's defense should China seek to overtake the island has brought the U.S. into the forefront of this conflict, more than it was before, at least. And Biden's remarks and the somewhat muddled attempt by his national security team to roll them back afterward were followed by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan this summer. None of this seemed to make China super happy. Correct. So let's perhaps begin, as you might, in your PS140 class, which, for those who don't know, is an introduction to international relations with a little bit of history about the relationship between Taiwan and China and maybe why Taiwan views itself as independent while Mm -hmm. China begs to differ. Absolutely. So I will try to keep this short. And again, I'm not China. I, you know, because of 140 and my other research and trade, for example, I read up a lot on China and what's going on. I'm not, you know, a Professor Friedman or a Professor Lei about, you know, an expert on China. But I'll tell you what I know. Let's go back to the early 1900s, let's say around World War One. China was still kind of a divided empire with warlords and different political parties and groups, and they weren't, it was not unified. So there's this attempt to unify China, and and it works around the, you know, the teens and into the 20s. And as part of that unification strategy, there begins to develop a rift to the main political party that's leading that unification charge, which is the KMT, Kuomintang. And so uh, the KMT sort of splits, and the KMT initially kind of asked for international help to unify China. The only people who said yes was the new communist regime that had emerged in Russia. And so they helped, so Russia, China, and KMT initially kind of come together, but then the KMT splits. And part of the KMT becomes very anti-communist and part of the KMT splits off and creates a communist party. So starting in the 20s, 27, there begins to be kind of this civil war. So as China's just unified, there's a civil war that breaks out. That civil war is off and on between the nationalists, what we'll call the nationalists now, the KMT, and the communists, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Eventually Stalin abandons those communists, but they keep fighting. And then World War, then Japan invades, right? In the midst of all this chaos, Japan invades, so then you've got uh, you know, and there's this kind of temporary unification between the communists and the KMT to fight the Japanese, although they're still kind of in the background, still kind of pulling and hauling against each other politically and certainly militarily as well. So then when it looks like Japan's going to fall and at the end of World War II, the Civil War like reignites completely in 1945. And uh, it goes for four years until 1949. Uh, eventually the communists get the upper hand, led by Mao. 
Uh, the KMT, which this, most of this entire time has been led by a man named Chiang Kai-shek, uh, flee, and they flee to Taiwan. And a lot of the islands surrounding Taiwan, the Takens, Kumoi, Matsu, those sort of coastal islands. And they occupy that and they say, we're China. Now, of course, in 1949, when the, the United States and Western Europe was incredibly anti-communist, we didn't want to recognize that Mao had come to power in China. So we recognized, quote unquote, China, can't see the scare quotes, uh, China was Taiwan, right? And it's not until Nixon in 73 goes to China, kind of quote, opens China with Kissinger. And then it's not until 79 that you get permanent diplomatic relations between China and the United States. At that point, we undo a military alliance that we had with Taiwan starting in the mid-1950s. We'll come back to this at some point, I'm sure. But in the mid-1950s, we signed a military alliance with Taiwan, like we had with Japan, like we had with Korea where we pledged to defend them. Well, Carter rips that up as a condition of normalization with China. Immediately, Congress passes something called the Taiwan Relations Act in 1979, which creates this sort of ambiguous thing about, well, we're friendly, we're going to sell them a lot of weapons, but we don't know if we'll defend them or not. And then, you know, fast forward to today. And that's kind of the background, the five-minute version. So in recent weeks and months, how has China tried to intimidate Taiwan? Have there been any specific events or comments that have aggravated this conflict? Sure. So, you know, China oftentimes will undertake, especially with the Taiwanese or the U.S. considers policies that are, seem very hostile towards Taiwan. One of the things they've do, done historically is that around the time of Taiwanese elections, they'll test fire some missiles over China. Uh, the most intense version of this happened in 1995-96 when Clinton was in power in the United States, when they just did this whole barrage of missiles around the Taiwanese election. And they do this to kind of intimidate Taiwanese. I mean, part of these questions are about, you know, Taiwanese independence. Well, not all Taiwanese want independence. And in fact, most Taiwanese do not want independence. They want a unified China with them back in control. Now, there is a younger generation in Taiwan that kind of wants more independence. We can come to that later. So every time there's an election, China always engages in this slightly intimidating behavior to kind of discourage people from voting for the pro-independence party. Because China still views, China views Taiwan as a renegade province, right? It's part of China. These are ethnic Chinese. Like, of course, they're, they're part of our country. And so elections are often a big spur to this uh, intimidating behavior. But of course, Nancy Pelosi's visit as well. Uh, Biden saying we're going to defend China. Under Trump, you know, Trump, one of the first leaders Trump called after he was elected was Taiwan. Anytime the U.S. legitimates Taiwan as an independent country in the eyes of China, that gets China upset. And they're going to under, usually undertake some diplomatic action to kind of punish the U.S., punish Taiwan, intimidate Taiwan, etc. I think that segues really well into this next question, which is how has China's government interacted with the democratic Taiwanese government thus far? Mm -hmm. So there's been this kind of live and let live. Again, China will undertake hostile, intimidating behavior against Taiwan. But for the most part, right, there's sort of this policy of live and let live, like They've eschewed this idea for years that they're going to militarily take the island. They've not ruled it out, but they've never talked it up, especially as long as Taiwan's not making a lot of noise about independence, you know. And so China's policy has been, I would say, fairly even. Now, what's happened over the years, and I would say two things. Number one, what we've seen is Xi Jinping, the leader of China, has really consolidated his power, right? Technically, China is an authoritarian country, but for many years, there's sort of an act of politburo. I mean, they're 
China's experts will tell you there's this perceived check on the power of the Chinese leader, right? And that they can't kind of get over, out over their skis too much, or the Politburo and Communist Party members and the military will kind of rein them in a little bit. Xi Jinping has been very effective at un, kind of unfettering himself from those. Um, he has made institutional changes to allow him to stay in power longer. He has kind of reinforced his own position of power in the country. And that's made a lot of folks outside China nervous. They sort of imagine sort of Putin, what Putin has done in the last decade. They see the same thing happening with Xi Jinping in China. And so, and the belief always has been that the Chinese restraint in Asia, especially with Taiwan, has been because, well, even though it's a dictator, he's got strings and no dictator wants to start a bad war, et cetera, because he'll be punished internally. So that's kind of point one. Xi Jinping has consolidated power and that makes people very nervous. Point two uh, is the Ukraine invasion, right? Anytime one country invades another, all the media and pundits go crazy, like, oh, is this, you know, is Xi Jinping gonna see this and think like, oh, this is a model. Now, what's interesting is, you know, or when the US withdrew from Afghanistan, right? Oh, does this, you know, it's like any international that people love to tie to tie it to Taiwan and China. The Ukraine invasion is an interesting one because initially people were like, oh, we'll see this shows that dictatorial leaders who have consolidated power like Putin, AKA like Xi Jinping can undertake these territorial conquests with very little ramifications and pushback. But of course, it's not what we've seen in Ukraine. We've seen huge international pushback. We've seen, also we've seen the invasion like fail. And even though Chinese and Russian military strategy and equipment is different, there are some commonalities there such that military folks will tell you this should give China some pause, right? To see how the Russian military is performing in Ukraine. But, but that whole narrative got introduced, right? Which now it's like, okay, so between Xi Jinping consolidating power and between what seems like this new rash of territorial invasions, that just gets people thinking about it and gets this back to a topic, which is, you know, why we're talking about it today. <laughs> and just for clarification, who are the main people in power in Taiwan right now who would lead this charge? You know, Taiwan's a democracy, and traditionally, the KMT is still there. There is a Kuomintang that is a political party in Taiwan that is very strong and powerful. There is There are more pro-independence-oriented parties as well. You know, so the current president has to, of Taiwan has to walk this line. And also, the president of Taiwan, she knows, like, she can't antagonize China too much. But by the same token, she's not going to resist the United States. So when Nancy Pelosi came, right, she welcomes her with open arms. It's like, this is our ally, right? This is who sells us our weapons. This is who we do a lot of economic interaction with. Um, and that's another thing I should mention, the economic interaction, which, again, we may get to, is like China and Taiwan do a lot of business. And that's always been, like, for folks like me who study international relations, that's kind of always been one of our first answers when people ask about tension. It's like, well, tensions will never get too bad because China is does a lot of business with Taiwan and vice versa. And they don't want to, and if you fought a war, then presumably that business all. So in the days that followed Biden's remarks that the U.S. would defend Taiwan, Biden's national security team and Jake Sullivan tried to soften the comments' implications, saying there had been no substance change in U.S. policy towards Taiwan. So the U.S., in other words, continued to adhere to the one China policy while maintaining a strategically ambiguous stance. So for our listeners, can you explain the United States' relationship with Taiwan and the policy of strategic ambiguity? Yes, absolutely. So the origins of this go back again to 79 and the Taiwan Relations Act. Most histories of the Relations Act will tell you that the Carter administration was not horribly thrilled 
with this, and this was Congress, that the Taiwanese lobby in the United States, folks like Barry Goldwater, but, but also, you know, who's very conservative, but also liberals as well. And they raised all the same issues that we talk about today, China's human rights, right? Chinese internal practices. And that it was like, okay, well, why are we abandoning this democratic state? And this was in the middle of the Cold War too, in 79. Like, why are we abandoning this democracy to make friends with communism? And then, of course, the answer was because we were trying to peel China away from the Soviet Union, right? And get a new ally against the Soviets because we knew there had been tensions there. But, but then people felt bad about leaving Taiwan behind. So the Taiwanese Relations Act says things. So for example, the Taiwanese Relations Act sets up a nonprofit corporation that's wholly owned by the U.S. government that is technically runs what we would call embassies with Taiwan and diplomatic relations with Taiwan. But they're not embassies. It's a business. It's an NGO. So diplomatically, we, quote, don't have relations with Taiwan. Yet Congress oversees and runs this business that does relations with Taiwan. Right. So it's this weird, weird kind of back channel thing. The TRA also says that we will give, we will sell and make available weapons to, to Taiwan as needed, right? And we have over the years sold many highly advanced tactical like fighters to Taiwan, sold them lots of weapons. China hates this. And this also will occasionally spur China to do something nasty to Taiwan, like test missiles, etc. cetera, uh, when, we, when we sell Taiwan weapons. And so that's kind of the, the origin of the relation story. What strategic ambiguity does and this is why Biden's comments made such a splash, is strategic ambiguity is supposed to mean that no one knows right, whether we're going to protect Taiwan. And this does two things. It creates uncertainty on the part of China. Like, it always introduces this massive uncertainty in their calculation, which we hope tilts them towards, okay, they may intervene and we're not going to do this. But it also restrains Taiwan. Right? If Taiwan knew we had their back and would throw everything we had into a war over Taiwan, they would start a war potentially tomorrow, right? To go take the mainland back, right? And of course that would be disastrous. But if we were then pledged to go in there, I mean, this is the problem with all alliances, you get dragged into things sometimes you don't want to be dragged into. So strategic ambiguity is for both sides. It's sort of like neither side knows what we would do. You know, going back to 1995, 1995, China starts launching missiles over Taiwan. Clinton sends aircraft carriers into the Taiwan Straits, right? And so, and we've done this multiple times. Um, but that was sort of the last super major deployment. In fact, that was, I think, one of the largest peacetime deployments of U.S. Navy ever, uh, was to go guard the Taiwan Straits in 95. So that kind of gives you a sense, right, of like, okay, if things do get super tense and hostile, at least 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the U.S. would sail right in there and try to get in the way. Do you have any idea why Nancy Pelosi would have chosen to go to Taiwan now? So why did Nancy Pelosi go? I don't have a great answer for that. I will say... Pelosi has been very vocal over the years and in her entire congressional career about Chinese human rights. And, you know, there's a large Chinese-American community in San Francisco, in right in the area where she's elected from. So this has been a political issue for her. That doesn't, to me, explain the timing. It kind of explains her interest. It doesn't explain the timing. You know, and, and this is a larger theme that I want to try to get across. One, the other thing that makes this whole situation dangerous is actually U.S. politics right now. Because... Right now, one of the few bipartisan issues you can find is anti-China, right? Democrats and Republicans are almost like trying to outbid each other for like, oh, I'm meaner to China than you are. I'm more anti-China than you, right? It's, it has echoes of the Cold War and the anti-Soviet stuff that would happen, you know? And again, it's Nancy Pelosi, it's Josh Hawley, it's Ted Cruz, right? It is everyone from both parties. No one is out there saying, you know, maybe China's not so bad. Um, 
But what that does is it gives, you know, what we know from international relations history is when you get these sort of people beating the drum, even if they're not official, like, presidents, vice presidents, secretaries of state. And, and what that's doing is, of course, is it's creating a narrative amongst Americans and the public. It's like, oh, they're bad. Whatever, everything they do is bad. And there could be some truth to that, like China's not a good actor in many, many cases, but they're really playing this up for electoral benefit. And I always worry when I see that because it's just like you can create this sort of, you know, false conflict that, again, there's, there's certainly roots of conflict there, no doubt. But it's like you're playing it up a little too much and risking sort of a brinksmanship where, you know, this wasn't about actual differences in strategic interests. This was about both sides kind of ratcheted up the rhetoric so much that they couldn't back down. And that's my fear is that that was sort of part of Pelosi's you know, motivation for going was just like, oh, this is this will help the Democrats, you know, and make us seem more anti-China. I'm going to really stick a finger in the eye of Xi Jinping by going to Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, and no, right, other people have been since, right? And they haven't gotten, but, you know, it's the Speaker of the House. Um, again, not the first Speaker of the House that's visited, but certainly the timing was, yeah, was interesting. The Biden administration, you know, as you ask in the question, which is absolutely right, like, the Biden administration attempt to sort of roll back some of his rhetoric on this was not the cleanest. So you've already got a little bit of like, look disheveled. And then the speaker's like, oh, I'm going. And Biden's like, please don't. It's like, well, I'm going anyway. Um, although it is interesting, you know, a lot of conservative commentators too were kind of like, I mean, on one hand, they were saying like, oh, why is she going? But then, you know, when China was like, you can't come, a lot of conservative commentators, right, were like, oh, of course she can go if she wants. Like, no one can tell Americans what to do, you know. So, right, the timing wasn't great. I don't know the kind of the strategic impetus to do it, but... Does the Biden administration have their own very clear stance on what their position is in this way? Because I feel like Nancy Pelosi, mm -hmm. by act of her going, obviously that somehow reflects on the Biden administration's overall image. But is Biden different from his predecessors in some way in the stance he's taking on this issue? Great question. So, yes and... Well, no, actually, I don't think so. I think what you've seen over time is an evolution. I think... I think if you go back to like Reagan or Bush, they were very careful. I think Clinton was mostly careful about this too. It's George H.W. Bush. W. Bush was mostly careful, although you saw a little bit more kind of back channel, a little more public. You know, there's a lot of arms sales in that era. Obama becomes a little, you know, it's, so it's almost like it's ratcheting up. And again, as I said, Trump, one of Trump's first call when he gets in the White House is to the president of Taiwan. And that was a huge thing at the time. People were like, well, you can't do that. That's terrible. You're breaking diplomatic practice. You're questioning on China. And, you know, Biden kind of comes in and is now twice said we're going to defend China. And it seems to be going back. You know, there's this, I don't remember the exact details, right? The State Department changed their website at one point about Chinese policy in the United States towards one China, you know, the one China policy. Then they had to go back and retract it. So, and again, I view this as more of a reflection of U.S. domestic politics, right? Like both parties have an interest in making China out to be, you know, a hostile country. And this is about trade. This is about COVID. This is about human rights. You know, this is about South China Sea policy. You know, this is about tensions with Korea and um, Japan. This is about North Korea. You know, it's like the list is long of the potential conflicts we have with China. You know, they're the rising great power. And history is, you know, 500 years of history is about great power competition. And that seems to be where we're going. But, the, but again, like, I just want to emphasize, the question is like, are there really differences? There certainly are. It's like, man, you get the wrong type of narratives going within either domestic society. 
and you just get to a conflict much quicker than you'd otherwise want. So as you just touched on, there's a lot of tensions in the U.S.-China relationship outside of Taiwan, mm-hmm. um, Belt and Road Initiative, the treatment of Uyghurs, uh, yep. COVID policies. How does Taiwan fit as a chess piece in some of those larger tensions, and how has the U.S. and China both manipulated their policies? To- yeah, Taiwan is definitely a central chess piece in all of this, and in some ways many people treat it as kind of the focal point. I don't know that that's right to do. Like, in other words, I, I think if you ask people making decisions in the U.S. and in China about this, I have a hunch. This is literally only a hunch on my part. I would even call it an educated hunch. But they're kind of tired of it. Like, they would much rather work out other issues first, right? Whether it is about COVID development, military cooperation, other types of things. Like, you know, at least in the U.S. side, I think that's true. You know, and again, I'm not a China expert. My sense is, you know, the argument about why Taiwan is important for China has always been, it's sort of like, you know, West Berlin was for the Soviets, right? There's this thing right near your border that are your people, but it's governed nothing like you govern your people. And it's this sort of island of, you know, democracy right off your coast that kind of shows what you can do. This was many people's argument about why... um, you know, Putin went into Ukraine as well. Like, you've got this super well-functioning democracy right on your doorstep. They want to get into NATO. You know, likewise, the U.S. and Cuba the other way around, right? This is where always made Americans worried about Cuba. It's like, oh, there's this communist state right off, right off Florida. And so I think that's what keeps it, obviously, high in the interests of China. But, you know, like, how much does China actually want to pay attention to this and be spending resources and time on this? I don't know. My Again, part of my guess is, of course, it's important to them, but I think they also would much rather be spending resources developing outposts in the South China Sea and around the Spratly Islands, you know? So, yeah. So, so it is. It's, it's an important chess piece, for sure. I do wonder if it gets a little too much attention occasionally. And again, for me, the purest sign of this is anytime there's an international event which makes China look good or bad or the U.S. looks good or bad, it's the first topic that comes. Oh, Taiwan. What does this mean for Taiwan? Um, but, and, and I will also say... And I will probably get to this. You're going to ask me at some point, like, is there going to be a war? The China experts I know and talk to are completely divided on this. Like, you, I know super smart people who studied China for a decade who are like, yep, there's going to be an invasion in two or three years. And I know people who have studied it intensively, lived there also for a decade, who are like, no way. No way China goes after Taiwan. I mean, I don't think there's any political issue in international relations where you find incredibly smart, qualified people with just utterly divergent views on this topic. Mm. Part of that is just about, right, reading the strategic situation. And I will say the other thing to introduce, you didn't ask about this, but I think it's important to mention, there is now this cottage industry in the U.S. among China watchers. Um, And if you just like Google the phrase peak China, right, so this is a new argument. It's really hot in the think tanks. There's been a couple foreign affairs pieces on it this summer. There's a lot of China folks who believe that because of what Xi Jinping has done internally to China, they're on the down. They're on the downswing. That China has reached its peak as a major power and it's now declining. And they note all kinds of things. The Belt and Road, they've actually backed off the Belt and Road some. Like they're spending less on it. You're seeing more internal troubles that the Chinese Communist Party is having to deal with. Some of it's all about COVID policy. Some of it's about human rights. Right? Some of it's about just governance problems that they're having. So it's like, you know, their growth has slowed. Now, maybe that's COVID, maybe that's other things. And of course, again, you have people saying, no, 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 this is a temporary thing, they'll get better. But for sure, all the data suggests in the last few years, China seems to be 
kind of economically and diplomatically on their heels a bit. And so this has spurned this whole like peak China. Now let's assume that's true. I think that makes them more dangerous, not less. Right. Because that's, again, we know historically, it's exactly when especially strong, unchecked leaders will often attempt to use force. It's like when they, you know, it's the old wag the dog theory, right? Where it's like, okay, things are bad. We need a distraction. And, you know, the Chinese government runs on nationalism, right? And this would be an easy way for them to, if they're declining, if Xi Jinping feels like people are threatening his leadership, again, we're not there yet. But if we get to that point in five years, that's what I would, I think that's peak danger. Are any of those arguments or the analysis of the situation similar to what people thought about Russia and Ukraine? There's a little bit of that. I think Russia and Ukraine is a little more complicated uh, from my understanding of it. But yes, no, and I mean, you see that argument made as well that, again, no one thought Putin was going to be kicked out anytime soon, but that, you know, the economy was in decline. He thought he had good leverage. He thought people would ignore this just like we did when he went into Crimea. And, you know, he felt like the West was sort of breaking apart. The U.S., right, especially under Trump for four years, had really said, oh, NATO is not important, blah, blah, blah. We don't care about Europe anymore. And so I think there was that was part of the Ukraine calculus. But yeah, part of it probably was like in a declining economy where you have to maintain repression and you've got unchecked power on a on one individual like those. You could see those exact dynamics playing out for sure. I'm going to circle back real quick to something you talked about a little bit ago, which was that economic consequence for both parties if a conflict were to occur and how that's a check on the whole situation. So one potential consequence of this situation in America might be the semiconductors that are important Mm -hmm. to U.S. consumers that Mm -hmm. Taiwan produces right now. And they power all sorts of electronic devices like computers, smartphones, Mm -hmm. cars. Mm-hmm. So have cross-strait tensions hurt Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturers that are vital to the U.S. economy? Uh, great question. Great, super interesting topic. I think the answer is indirectly right now. Like, I don't think the tensions have hurt per se any more than COVID created like massive supply chain problems. But here's what's gotten interesting in my perspective. Right, China, uh, Taiwan supplies 80% of the world's semiconductors. South Korea supplies the rest. No one else. That's it. All semiconductors come out of those two countries. China can't do it, we can't do it in the US, no other country. And so as a result, what you've seen, and you know, it's the Taiwanese uh, Semiconductor Corporation that does all of this, and they've kind of cornered the market on this somehow. And that's an interesting, like, I don't know enough about it, but that's a fascinating question. Like, how do you take the world's possibly second or third most important industry and let like one company essentially dominate it? Like completely as a monopoly. So as a result, so why do I say it could be hurting? You know, like the Congress just passed this $50 billion bill on, like, we want to be able to manufacture semiconductors here. We are way behind on that. It's going to take a lot of money and resources. But Congress, again, because everyone is worried about China and agrees China is a, quote, bad guy, Congress is going to be willing to do this. It was a bipartisan effort. So Biden signs this $50 billion bill to start doing better semiconductor work in the United States. That could eventually compete with Taiwan. If we can get that technology, if we can do better to penetrate that market for security or political reasons, that will hurt the Taiwanese industry. And you know, the real, the ultimate question is like, let's say China successfully invades Taiwan. Now China controls 80% of the semiconductor market, right? And it's like, do you do what we did with Russia and stop buying semiconductors from them? Now all of a sudden 80% of our semiconductors are gone. And I told my class Wednesday, like, forget your new iPhone 14, right? Like, that's not going to happen, right? Samsung and, and these other companies in South Korea can't keep up with that demand right now. Now, that's 10 steps ahead, right? But that's the disaster scenario people have in their head, is that 
And, and, and I will say, if China invades Taiwan, they were gonna, they're going to bet on that not happening. Right? That China invades Taiwan, and we don't have the guts to cut off exports of semiconductors, even if they're owned by China. So circling back to the military tensions in that discussion, yeah. um, if there's an invasion of Taiwan by China, what geopolitical actors will um, get involved in that if the U.S. gets involved in that? Great question. If China would invade Taiwan, look, my own prediction would be the U.S. definitely comes to help. Whether that means we start World War III, I don't know. You know, I don't think we would, for example, give Taiwan any kind of nuclear weapons. Would we, you know, sail the Seventh Fleet again into the Taiwan Straits with the aircraft carriers and Navy flotillas to try to prevent a, a blockade of Taiwan? Maybe. You know, I, I think you'd have to know, like, what's the public mood? And, I mean, the reason I think we would is because of all these narratives. I mean, this is the flip side of these domestic narratives about China so bad. It's like if they invaded Taiwan, you know, I think the U.S. would seriously consider like significant military action all the while not wanting a general war with china like we do not want a war with china and china doesn't want a war with us and yet and and that's ultimately why i'm more on the skeptic side about the invasion but you know if they would invade right that's you know it's just like with ukraine it's like how much are you willing to do like what how close are you willing to toe that line what are you going to sell them? What are you going to give them? What are you going to defend? Like, you know, in Ukraine from day one, it was like no ground troops. And that didn't surprise anyone. At least I don't think it surprised anyone. Like, we're not going to go send in 100,000 American troops, right? Because, again, that's World War III, right? Because the Americans are going to kill the Russians. The Russians are going to kill the Americans. Next thing you know, it gets ugly. We don't want that with China either. And so, and that's the real danger of floating, you know, a couple of aircraft carriers through the Taiwan Straits is, you know, as, any, as Professor Kidd or anyone else who studies these issues would tell you, like, you're just increasing the potential for miscalculation. If you, that's, you're just going to get an accidental war between China and the United States. So those are the types of calculations the U.S. and China makes as they think about that type of thing. Would our allies from NATO help? Yes, for sure. But again, what would that mean? Like, are we going to sanction? Again, like, Russia's a small oil economy petroleum economy like and and that hurt right that hurt us and it certainly hurt europe germany in particular if you imagine like no trade with china starting tomorrow that's intense we can't do that right now and europe's certainly not going to do that right now given they're already in the throes of having to deal with supply issues with, with gas and oil so so yes taiwan would get a lot of help how you would then define help I think is really the key question. I just, you'd get a lot, you'd get some sanctions, you'd get economic assistance, you'd get lots of aid to Taiwan, you get military sales, military weapon sales. Beyond that, from the Koreas, Japans, and Australias, and Germany, UK, France of the world, yeah, they're gonna make those same tough calculations the US has to make. They're even more removed though. Do you think the amount of attention that Taiwan and China is getting right now from countries like the US is kind of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, the more we say there's going to be conflict between Taiwan and China, the more likely it is that that happens. It can't help. I don't know ultimately how much it would contribute to kind of an accident or, but a little bit, I mean, again, this is why I worry about the domestic political narratives here and in China, you know, playing up this anti-US, anti-China stuff. It's like it, when lots of leaders have incentives to not back down and to sort of flex, bad things can happen. Now, ultimately what you hope, and what history's mostly shown, 
is that, especially in the nuclear era, is that you get these kind of crises and someone backs down, like cooler heads do prevail. And I would say as a footnote, and this is relevant to Ukraine as well, you know, the main question I, would, I was asked teaching 140 last spring was, oh, is there going to be nuclear war? Like very worried, worried people, people in the street, like students, like, oh my gosh. Because, you know, Russia was very open about, we're not going to not nuke Ukraine. But I would just point out, again, you know, nod to Professor Kidd and nuclear strategy here, like, that's wise nuclear strategy. Saying you're not going to not use something is like brilliant nuclear strategy. Like, of course. And that made everyone reconsider what we were doing in Ukraine. That was the point. You know, are they really going to nuke Ukraine? No, I, I don't think so. But it, like it gave us pause, right? And so China and the U.S., that's double trouble there, right? Russia cares more about Ukraine than we do. So we were never going to intimate we might use nukes in Ukraine. We might intimate we use nukes in Taiwan. Eisenhower in this... Um, was the first or the second Taiwan Straits crisis? First was in 55, the second was in 58. Eisenhower actually gives this press conference about Taiwan because China had actually taken over some islands that had been occupied, the Taken Islands. And um, Eisenhower gives this news conference where he's sort of railing at the podium in front of the media saying like, I don't understand, we've got all these nuclear weapons, why can't we use them? And then he like storms away from the podium, right? Like two days later, China is like, okay, fine, we're done, right? You know, it's just like, that's nuclear brinksmanship, you know? And so when you see this talk of escalation, escalation, part of that is legitimate, like, okay, people are trying to escalate to assess resolve, but part of it's also just theater, right? And you're trying to figure out, are they gonna back down? Are they not gonna back down? It's kind of scary that when you think about it in like a game situation, given, you know, we're talking about billions of lives at stake, but, but that's the essence of like nuclear conflict and brinksmanship. You've said it's kind of impossible at this point to make predictions about this because mm -hmm. everyone has very different opinions. Mm -hmm. But what would you see needing to happen for the situation to change in any direction? Is it possible to predict what type of action would trigger either a de-escalation or a big escalation? Well, you can imagine an escalation happening if Taiwan hauls off tomorrow and declares independence. Not going to happen. Again, if you look at polling data done by, for example, universities in Taiwan, they're really good public opinion polls, like something like 25, 26% of Taiwanese just want the status quo, 25 or 26, like indefinitely, 25 or 26 want the status quo, maybe with a little thinking about interdependence, and like another 20% are like, status quo, and let's decide later. Like, and the, you add that up, that's like 60, almost close, you're closing on 70% of the Taiwanese population who don't want independence anytime soon. So the odds that someone gets elected on that platform in Taiwan, it's like, oh my gosh, we're going to go declare independence. Like, that would be a major escalatory. Then I would be concerned. But I just don't see that happening. And probably because the Taiwanese people know, right, that that's going to happen. So they're not going to cut their nose off despite their face, right? Um, de-escalation, look, I mean, it sounds kind of weak, but, you know, de-escalation is just sort of time. I think if, again, I worry about the pressures on the Chinese regime, should they feel like they're imperiled somehow? I would worry about some major initiative by the United States at this moment to like sell massive amounts of weapons to Taiwan. But uh, sorry, I, I keep going to escalation. Uh, De-escalation is <laughs> hard to imagine. You know, just time, like sort of, you know, six months without any kind of big news, you know, just sort of gradually, you know, ratchet things down. You know, the final thing we haven't talked about is, that is a little bit related to this is Hong Kong, right? And the protests that have gone on there and the fact that China has cracked down in Hong Kong because... There were, you know, look, I think there were some number of people in Taiwan who thought like, okay, we could live under the PRC 
we'd be fine. They'd let us keep having elections. They'd let us be nominally independent. We'd be part of them. We'd pay taxes to them or whatever. But after what's happened in Hong Kong, I think anyone who had that vision doesn't have that now, right? I mean, China has really forcefully and clearly limited autonomy of Hong Kong after they took over. And so there, there was an off-ramp there that is no longer there. Let's put it that way. So what haven't we talked about that we should? I want to get in Hong Kong. I think that's important because there is that. Ukraine, obviously, this parallel, maybe not parallel. The peak China stuff is just fascinating to me that there is this group of people now. Um, and the fact that, like, yes, there are, like, people I have known for a decade who are, like, I would consider like the, some of the best China people. And this summer I was at two different workshops and at one of them, I heard someone in that category I would put, it's like super smart, super informed, super awesome. It was like, yes, inevitable invasion, next five years. Three days later, I was at a different workshop. I met someone different and they were like, nope, we've seen peak China, they're done, China's done. No way they invade Taiwan. I was like, okay, what do I do with this? Like how do, as someone who doesn't watch China every day, um, how, do, how do I make sense of these very different reads? You know, part of this is exacerbated by the opacity of the regime. Like we don't often know what's going on in China, and so and those folks that the China specialists are often talking to slightly different people within China who are telling them how they see the world there. That and that could be the origin of some of these differences. I don't know, but just the ambiguity that I see in scholarly punditry on where China's at, what the future holds, you know, at, at that level, I think is. Is interesting. I just don't know that I've ever seen such an important issue with such ambiguity. That's quite a statement from someone who teaches international relations, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, now I've seen like people be like wrong, like you know, famously a very, very famous IR professor came here in 2000, my first year, and gave all these public lectures. And someone asked him about terrorism. This is like you know six months before 9/11. He's like, "Why are you asking about terrorism? No one cares about terrorism. We'll never care about terrorism, right?" And that was the political science view of terrorism for 25 years was like, this doesn't affect us. You shouldn't study it. It's, you know, whatever. This happens over there. We should, no one should care about this. And then 9-11 happens. It's like, okay, well, we were completely wrong about that. Um, uh, so it's not that we always have it right and we're all on the same side. It's just that I've never seen such an, almost I would say, even split between yeah. folks. I think we're coming up on our time here. I feel like we covered a lot of ground. So yes. I, we're going to end with one last Fun question. Okay. You're a musician and we know you love music. So mm. any music you're especially vibing to right now. <laughs> that's good. And like any it. recommendation of new music mm. that's caught your attention that you think we should check out. Great questions. Uh, and I, please put musician in scare quotes. Uh, I've been listening to the new Beach Bunny record a lot lately, which is like really into this band called Goon. They kind of sound like some cross between like Japanese breakfast and Silver Sun pickups. I know that's like very different, but Goon I've been into. They have a new record came out this summer. Um, a lot of Spoon this summer. I actually saw them at the Sylvie. Got my nine year old in the front row. Um, got caught a pick, you know, after the show. It's like this is your best show ever. Like you'll never. This is peak concert for you at <laughs> nine. Um, it was it was a great show. Like I saw it twice. I saw it in Milwaukee a couple months earlier, and then they came back here. And this was the much better show than the Milwaukee show. Nice. Madison has the good music vibes. It does, yeah. People like it here. My Morning Jacket did a big show. It's like kind of our family band. So we took the whole family to um, My Morning Jacket. And he, Jim James, went off on this long thing about the last time we played here, it was Halloween. And we went to State Street and we spent all night on State Street. 
And I ended up in this guy's apartment. He was dressed as Link from Breath of the Wild. That's all I remember. And he just went off on this long story about how the whole band ended up at Halloween night uh, on State Street. It's like, he's like, so I don't know why we haven't come back here since then. So, so anyway, yeah. <laughs> Madison just has good vibes for, for musicians. So that maybe I'll steal a spoon. You know who else? Like old school. Uh, I listened to a lot of Elton John this summer. I went and saw the show at um, he played in Chicago, played Soldier Field. So the final tour. So I listened to some Elton John lately. New Arctic Monkeys is coming out. I'm very very excited for that. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, this has been fabulous, and I've learned so much from this conversation. So thank you so much for being here again. And this was a great start to our school year lineup of interviews. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me and good luck this year and good luck with the podcast and good luck with school, everyone. For more information, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers and Claire Salmi and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.